Where are we? Oh, we got a minute. Okay. Normal solutions link? Uh, it's a morning prayer. Yeah, okay. I have it. All right. Let's, let us begin. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hello to all. Our last study, we um, reached the new creation. <laughs> <laughs> We will, after today, take a break until after Labor Day. Mass at 9.30 will continue. We'll be continuing Mass on, on Tuesday and Thursday. We'll pick up in the fall and September the Bible study. I don't know what we'll study. If you want to weigh in on that, you can feel free to email me or even ask a question now or, or suggest something. All right, let's jump in. We got us actually the uh, chapter 22 is actually a little bit longer. It's got a lot of stuff in it, so we should jump in and do it, get after it a little bit. So, uh, we just read through like like we want and and kind of make comments as we go. Um, Revelation twenty two one, and he showed me a pure water of life, clear as crystal, <clears throat> proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, we've been working our way through Revelation with with uh, again, the assumption that virtually every image in Revelation is rooted somewhere in the Old Testament. That John has very, you know, I don't know if he has any brand new images. They might be, you know, developed from something in the Old Testament. Um, but here, this is not a new image. Where does this come from? Where's our our uh, first river in the Bible? Genesis. So in Genesis 2.10, now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. From there it parted and became four river heads. Now, the image of Eden as a central sort of temple Space from which water goes to water the whole earth and give life to the whole earth. That's the implication of the Genesis passage. You have a river that parts into four 
which are the four directions of the world, to water it and give it life. Um, so, this water, it, with the detail that's added here, it proceeds from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now we have the source of the water. Um, and it's interesting a little bit here in Genesis, as it was with the idea of light. Um, we're told, you know, that wouldn't be any sun or moon here. But we remember in Genesis that there was a light that preceded the sun and moon. And here we have a water that flows from the throne and from the Lamb. It's not simply, you know, I mean, evaporation and rain clouds. You, you have a source and it is in God. Now, water here is not merely, well, it is the thing that gives life. Uh, it's interesting. I was I was a little, like everyone knows that water makes plants grow, but I have a couple of rose bushes in planter containers at home that I hadn't hooked up any sort of watering mechanism to. So it depended on me remembering the water, which was like every day or so. Now we get to summer, it gets pretty sad pretty quickly. But so I finally had this sort of drip, drip system that happened some other stuff, and I finally just rearranged it so there's a drip into each one. And I did it about two weeks ago. It's remarkable what a little water each day. Also, we have rest roses. <laughs> but water is the thing that gives life. Now, the idea that water is the thing that blooms flowers and gives life is a sacramental symbol of the points is to the Holy Spirit, the water, which is which of which the symbol, one symbol of the Holy Spirit is water. You know, the water of baptism. Um, Jesus will actually make a specific connection between the Holy Spirit and water. Um, that therefore we need that water of the Spirit, or we will dry up and not bear any fruit. And this this is part of the the logic of the life of prayer. That, that if our lives are to be fruitful, they must be planted and rooted in God, and they must receive regular sustenance from the Holy Spirit, which will bear fruit. As Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, you abide in me, he abides in me, bears much fruit, because without me you can do nothing, which means I can't make that rose bush grow without any water, without some connection to the source of life. Nothing in our life can happen that's any good if we're cut off. Nothing eternally good if we're cut off from the source of life, which is Christ. So this water is proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. And notice that the Lamb is connected to the throne of God, because the Lamb is, the, is, is God, is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, this image is developed in Ezekiel. I sent this out to you, Ezekiel chapter 47. There's a whole separate study there um, in Ezekiel that um, the book of Ezekiel begins with God leaving the temple. This is for the Old Testament judgment on the temple where um, 
Babylonians came and destroyed Solomon's temple. Now in the, in the New Testament, that temple was rebuilt, and it's the second temple that the Romans will destroy. But Ezekiel was a prophet who described how the departure of the glory of God made way for the destruction of, the, of Solomon's temple. But then at the end of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has an image of a rebuilt temple. And we're not going to go into any detail, but he describes the new Jerusalem and the rebuilt temple in images. And this is one of those um, images in Ezekiel 7, 47, 1 through 9. I kind of excerpted it. I think I sent it to you. Ezekiel's being given a tour and a vision. And he brought me to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. So the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, the water flows towards the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. It shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these, these waters go there, so they will be healed. And everywhere, everything will live wherever the river goes. Now, those who are, are in the habit of coming to the Easter Vigil, um, when we do the baptismal font blessing, and there's a chant, I beheld water, the choir chants, flowing from, the, and it comes right from Ezekiel 47, and is plant is, is related to this image that baptism, the font, the water, the ever flowing water of baptism, is the water that flows from the throne of God and from the Lamb. It is the water of Ezekiel's temple. This is symbolic language to show how it abundantly gives life to all it touches. And notice how it talks about renewing the creation. And remember here, what we're talking about is a new creation. Remember when the destruction of Jerusalem was talked about, he talked about destroying the trees and all this kind of stuff, a symbolic way of saying that the old creation, the old way God interacted with man, that gave a kind of life was being destroyed. It would no longer give life. But now the new creation, centered in Christ, experienced by his church that is seated in the heavenlies with him, uh, created and sustained by the water that flows from him, the Holy Spirit, which we receive in baptism, but continually grows within us, that gives life everywhere, and it renews the whole creation. So this is the image we're dealing with here in Revelation. It goes back to the images of Ezekiel's temple. That's why we go sprinkle everyone on the peace for water to get away. What did we can? We used to find doing it. Some people are with you with that. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, make sure I said it. Yes, I get it. Put it over here. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, a couple other notes here. The water flows from the Lamb. This we should be aware of John 19. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. <clears throat> and in uh, John 1, 5, 6, he says, This is he who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and blood. The blood is for the forgiveness of sins, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And the water is for cleansing. But because Revelation presents the completed sacrifice of Christ, there's no image of blood here anymore. There's only the cleansing water that flows as a result of the blood that has reconciled us to God. John 2, 5, and 6, uh, where he tells Nicodemus he must be born again, water and the Spirit. Uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, he tells her in chapter 4 of John's Gospel, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me, and I'd give you a drink, or the, the water I give will be a well, you know, welling up and overflowing to life. Uh, Verse 2. In the middle of the street on an either side of the river was the tree of life. Notice the correspondence with Ezekiel up above. Ezekiel 47 had trees on either side. Which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The tree were for the healing of the nations. So where do we encounter the tree of life first? Garden. Was it forbidden? No. 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 What, was, what was forbidden? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil was forbidden. Tree of life you could eat. But they ate the forbidden fruit, and after the forbidden fruit was eaten, then God cut them off from the tree of life because they, they could not receive life in their sinful state. They, there had to be redemption. So at the end of Genesis 3, he places um, cherubim with a flaming sword to guard access to the tree of life, which means that the, the pathway to immortality has been cut off. And um, they... So that's the framework here, that Christ has um, fulfilled the covenant, done all the things that are necessary to provide the forgiveness of sins, and therefore the tree of the, he has given us access to the tree of life, which of course is connected to his um, Sacrament, his body, his blood. I am the bread of life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. All the sayings from, that come to us from John chapter 6.
Yeah, there's 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 a, a debate about there, obviously, whether they were two dead wooden cross members. I know Chilton in his commentary mentions there's some argument that he actually crucified on live tree. But it doesn't really matter because the, the the presence of the Lord of Life on whatever dead tree it was is the life. That's what makes the tree life giving, not the life itself. And he is the fruit of that tree, and that's um, that's also part of our image uh, that, that 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 comes up during Passion Tide. That the foe who by a tree had conquered by this tree might be overcome, because the the the, the, the forbidden fruit, uh, the forbidden tree, now now uh, Christ on the tree conquers and opens up access to the tree of life. And so, part of the realized, excuse me, the inaugurated eschatology of John here is brought out because Genesis ends, or the early parts of Genesis, with, you know, man kicked out of the garden, access tree of life cut off, and so they're, they're not, they can't get back to the garden. But what Genesis is portraying here in chapter 22 is that Acts, we are now, we are now back in the garden. We can eat the tree of life. We can live in communion with God. And yes, it's true that it's not a completed new creation yet, but it's here in a real way. And we have this life and we're already being healed by the fruit of the tree that we eat. And that's and that's John. That's a clear symbolism here. And we read Revelation in the wrong way. I'll just say categorically, if we don't understand the present dimension of it, there certainly is a future dimension. But this is talking about what has happened and is happening next. And as leaves are tree for the healing of the nations, the gospel goes out in the nations. Remember, the the rider on the white horse, Christ, went out to conquer with the gospel, take it to the nations. And here's the, here's the healing that, that is um, offered. Now, there's not just one tree of life. We, we understand the tree of life is a species, and they're different fruits, and it grows all the time. So the idea is the access is abundant. Part of Ezekiel's idea of the water is overflowing. There's plenty of it. And of course, for us, principally, this is a Eucharistic reference. Jesus is the bread of life. We can feed on this bread always. We can, you know, always we have access to life in our prayer through Jesus in the Spirit. But the Eucharist gives us the most objective and also communal aspect to it, where we as a body kind of enter into that reality that Revelation speaks of and participate in it together. Lord's Prayer, when you say, give us this prayer daily bread, that's what it's talking about. In, in the highest and full sense, yes. Also, our daily, he does provide us our daily yeah, well. right. <laughs> The ordering of the Christian life, then, is, though, that, that um, 
we should seek first that bread. And as we seek that bread of life, that is God's will in uh, our lives, and our uh, God will provide the other. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, these things will be added. Um, so, yeah, that's the order. That's the order. I, I think the disordered life is we're all concerned about procuring the daily bread, and God becomes just an afterthought to help us anxiously get that. And that's why we're anxious, because we're focused on that. It's not that we don't have to do that. We don't have to do work to get the daily bread. It's that God doesn't want us just to be perpetually anxious about it. He wants us to trust him and then do our, we still have to do our work. But if we do it, if we're thinking about the glory of God or thinking about the people who were serving in the middle of it, it enters into that reality of the kingdom and God naturally provides for us. And that's that's kind of the weather the well of life that we we all fall from, but we strive to remember and come back to. Verse three. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and the servant shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There's a few specific things being highlighted in these passages. First of all, clearly the curse of Genesis is being reversed. Um, and I'll, I'll read from Genesis 3.15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, a couple of aspects of uh, this here is that, so if Re Revelation has told us how Christ has vanquished the serpent, the serpent who, who operated to draw humanity into sin, the accuser of our brethren, who uh, chapter 12 of Revelation says, who accused them day and night, Christ has, has, has judged him. So he is no longer present to do the damage he did in the garden. And, and this was the image of, of, of his chaining the serpent and putting him into the abyss. And then in Genesis 3.16, the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be to your husband. He shall rule over you. But here, the pains of childbirth in Revelation um, become the birth pains of the new creation. And so the, the, the sort of curse of labor pains become metaphor for Israel's tribulation, and specifically the tribulation that Israel goes through, what, what is called in, in the time before the destruction of the temple, the great tribulation, actually gives birth to the new creation. So the pains of childhood have been redeemed by Christ, 
and the fruit now of those labor pains are the new creation. And then to Adam, he said, Genesis 3.17, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And the undoing of the curse now is that human labor is, is no longer in the spirit, in Christ, is no longer marked by futility. And th this is, uh, th and this is something that's really important to understand in, in the spiritual life because it gets caught up in this idea that, well, we, you don't work your way to salvation, you know, you're saved by faith, which is absolutely true. But with the gift of the spirit in Christ, we do labor. And the result of our salvation is that labor becomes fruitful. St. Paul says, after his big chapter on the resurrection, chapter 15, he says, Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not producing thorns and thistles. And we heard this throughout Revelation. Um, their works follow them. Why do their works follow them? Because their labor in the Spirit has a reward, a natural fruitfulness that was lacking from fault to fall. This gets back to the excellent sermon Father Hayden preached a couple times in his theme about Peter fishing on, on the Sea of Galilee. I labored all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, but because Jesus, his word and his spirit now makes that fruitless, that, that futile labor fruitful, fruitful. And this is how we're characterized our lives when we drift apart from the spirit, we labor and we flail, but living in Christ in prayer, our labor becomes fruitful. So there's no more curse. Throne of God, where the Lamb shall be in it. We, we're back in the garden. We're not. We're not exiled anymore. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. I think there's two distinct images being being gotten here. Um, in the Old Testament, you had some passages where it says Exodus 33:20, for example, "No man can see me and live." But Moses did see him. God said in Numbers 12:8, I speak with Moses face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. The point is that we see God face to face. All of God's people have this prophetic status of being in the spirit that enables us to see God. And this uh, is highlighted by 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where it says, As God who commanded light to shine out of darkness was shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So as we look at the face of Jesus, we look at the face of God, we see his face, we see God. And notice that Second Corinthians passage is very much a new creation imagery. 
in the beginning, God had light shining out of darkness to create the first heaven and earth. Now, in the new creation, the light, which is Christ, has shone in the darkness of sin, and now we see the face of God. And so that, that's characterizing the new creation. Um, there's clearly, again, this tension between the way in which we enjoy the status of union communion now and the way it will be fulfilled. But we're missing John because we don't understand that there's a real and important present dimension to it. The other thing he talks about is that there's his name will be on their foreheads. And this talk, this really harkens back to Exodus and Aaron and the priesthood. Um, here's what Exodus 28, 36-38 says. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a sickness, holiness to the Lord. You shall put it on a blue cord, that it may be on the turban that's on Aaron's head, and it should be on the front of the turban. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel hallow in all their gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. So Aaron bore um, sins of the people, but now we have the name of God. So it's, it's highlighting the fact that all of God's people participate in the prophetic and priestly aspect of the Old Covenant. We all have this access to God that only Moses and only Aaron had. Now, this does not preclude specific gifts of prophecy within the church, people having special gifts, but it highlights the fact that everybody who has the Spirit has ability to pray to God, and has a prophetic ability to discern God's will for their life. Is that connection with what, I forget the name of the thing you put on your head, Bishop, but is that connected to that? The Bishop thing is the mitre is a symbol of the descending tongues of fire on Pentecost. I'll be singing for years and years. Like <laughs> the name, I thought maybe the name of the right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No way you would know the studio. So we have to. The bishop, the bishop here almost never wears. <laughs> oh, you yes. don't really like it. <laughs> So, notice how this is systematically fulfilling these images from the fall and then the old covenant that are now completed and fulfilled in Christ and that, and that define us as God's new covenant people. Verse 5. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of sun. For the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. And here, no night there. I mean, it's like, oh, well, I like to walk in the dark. Calm it down. It's an image of the darkness being passed and, and the day in Christ coming. And now it is always day. 
Romans 13, I gave you a number of passages. Here's one I'll read, uh, John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, for the night of darkness, being able to see God, to know his presence is gone. There's a psalm that talks about uh, the darkness is no darkness with thee, for the light is as clear as the day, and the darkness and light to thee are both alike. And what we know now is that what we experience now is we have places of darkness, but Christ the light is with us in it. Remember the image from uh, Lord of the Rings where this, the, the light-giving thing in the darkness. Uh, so it doesn't, again, this, this doesn't mean that there aren't challenges and, and suffering and darkness. It means that, that in Christ they have all been conquered. And we can live in the light of that conquest and not be overcome by them. And because we live in Christ and God, God sees that this is, is, has, has been completed, we can hold on to it as, as a fact. Because it because it is what it is what God has done is the new creation. Makes me think of Psalm one thirty nine too, where he says, "Yeah, I think that's why I was thinking about it." Yeah, one thirty nine. Also, Colossians three ten, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of Islam. The night is metaphorically the quality of being free from captivity to the evil one and the power of darkness. Walk in perpetual life, even when struggling with temptation, as Christ is with us. They shall reign forever and ever, i.e., as kings and priests. This gets back to the dominion of Genesis, take dominion of the creation that Adam lost, and Christ is regained. It, and, and this is caught up in the image of being priests. Back to the four and the twenty-four elders of chapter four, reigning with Christ. How are we doing that? Through our prayer, through our connection with Him in the Spirit by which, as we live in the world, the world can no longer overcome us, we conquer the world. Because not even death can conquer us. Verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God and the holy prophets sent his angels to show his servants those things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Faithful and true means we can count on it just as the words of the Holy Prophets came true. Shortly take place. The clear evidence that Revelation deals with first century events. Coming soon. In the framework of Revelation, I am setting forth for you, he's coming soon in judgment on his unfaithful old covenant people. 
in coming soon to redeem his new covenant people and establish the kingdom in them. Not at the end of time. Once you hear this this way, a lot of Bible things fall into place in a way that, that people just do a bunch of gymnastics with, and they still don't make any sense of it. Harkening back again to Revelation 1.1, that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Again, coming quickly in judgment on Jerusalem to vindicate the new covenant people. All that has been described in Revelation 17. Note also that Jesus comes continually to his church. So in the letters to the churches, Revelation 2.5, 2.16, 3.11, and again, the reference was coming in 16.5. Repent, or else I'll come to you. So, there are ways that Christ comes now in acts of judgment in time, and in acts of salvation in time which are not the second coming at the end of time. Once we understand that, and, and it really helps us as, as a church to understand this, once we connect the sense of time with the chronology of the life of, 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 of the scriptures, really, is, is it life birth and the Eucharist. What happens at the Eucharist? Well, Christ comes to us. We're gathered. He comes to us. We experience something that we is a real thing now. There's a completion of it in the future, but he comes now. And each of us in our lives in prayer can situate we're praying and we find we finally see what God is doing and we have a sense of Christ coming to us and and and, and we wait for that. And the interim deliverances fill us with the hope of the ultimate. Verse 8. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. When I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book, worship God. This seems to be the sense John is tempted to worship the angels because they're glorious creatures, but the redeemed are now of equal status with them. See, for example, Psalm 5. Psalm 8, 5. Uh, what, is, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you regard him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. The crown of the glory and worship. In First Corinthians six, uh, when he 
when he, when St. Paul is um, criticizing Christians in Corinth pursuing each other in the secular court, he says, do you not know that we shall judge angels how much more things pertaining to this world? So this, I think this is the idea here with John and the angel. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book with time as a king. Now, this is seems clearly connected to a passage in Daniel, Daniel 12, 4, where the angel who was giving visions to Daniel said, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Now, do not seal the words. The time is at hand. What time? The time of the end. The end of the what? The end of the old covenant age. Once you understand that, it makes biblical reading make a lot more sense. And again, the, the thing that, that the, is the present truth that makes sense of that is that we are now living in the kingdom of God, the inaugurated eschatology of the New Testament. It's not merely a future thing. There's a future component to it, but it's a present thing. And in fact, um, you know, just I've said this before, but if it makes any, if it make any sense, don't worry about it. But this this point of eschatology really explains a lot of the error of our day, because true the true eschatology understands that there is a real communion with God in Christ of the Spirit now in the church that we enjoy, but it's not the end of it. It'll only be completed when Christ comes, that we're witnesses in the world, but that this world is not perfectible until he comes. We can bear witness, we can manifest the kingdom. The world will be better because of that witness, but it's not perfectible, and we must never assume it is. The errors are to move in one of two directions, to, to say, well, the kingdom is, is really come, and now it's our job to perfect the world. And that's the error that a lot of um, Christians fall into, usually of a more sort of socially active sort. Okay, the church, its entire work is about perfecting the world. It's not. It simply isn't. It's about bearing witness for Christ in the world. And when you fall into that, what it loses is the future dimension of Christ completing it. It puts it into our hands. We become you know, activists for this and that thing, which may not even be the kingdom. Because we always have to, the primary thing about the kingdom is the gospel message of Jesus of course. We end up jettisoning, when the people do, they end up jettisoning that and just getting into good work, which no longer even reflect the primacy of that. Which is interesting, too, in the whole justice discussion. The primary act of biblical justice is to give God the worship he is due. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. That's the great commandment. When we withhold that, we are unjust. And therefore, to think about justice only in terms of how we treat each other, because and, and it skews it because it's the worship of God 
that's, that then makes us aware, like, oh, we're all in the image of God. Now I have to give you the justice that the image of God is due. But if we get rid of, the, of God, and we no longer root justice in, in the God-bearing image of each person, we're going to make up standards. And we're going to, and, and that's kind of what happens. And not, it's no, it's no longer the witness of the church. It becomes, but that's what happens when we root our eschatology too much in it's here now with us, and we have to do it. On the other extreme is more what you call the futurist eschatology, where it's Jesus is coming, and we're just trying to save people and and. Stay believe in Jesus, but we're not real concerned about you know the creation as a thing, or 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 the or the goodness of, of the current order, <clears throat> and that tends to happen. You know, it, I don't even say that people who focus a lot on the end times all believe that, but it's the net effect of it is is a, a sacrifice of present witness for future salvation, holding those two intentions. That, that Christ, we're in Christ now as witnesses, but it'll never be fulfilled till he comes. And sometimes for our witness, we may get crucified, metaphorically. And that shows that we're bearing faithful witness. We can rejoice in that, because that's how it... Having experienced that, the futuristic, now experiencing this, it finds it's amazing to me. What do we do? It's, it's kind of the, the the pendulum swing of American Christianity because it really became more social justice, not recently, but in the mid-20th century, got more into social gospel. Why was that? It's because the, the dirty little secret is most of the seminaries were full of unbelievers. And they really, they really started doubting that Jesus was really the Son of God. The Bible had anything to say. So all you had left was to make the church a do-gooder out of it. Um, and the reaction against that kind of, of loss of, of that is the other side. No, it's Jesus is Lord. You must repent. And you have to hold those intentions to get the right perspective. It's hard, it's hard to do. Um, Always understanding that we're present in the world as witnesses, but this world is not protectable apart from the fullness of the kingdom. So, moving on to verse 18, or excuse me, verse 11. <clears throat> he was unjust, let him be unjust still. He was filthy, let him be filthy still. He was righteous, let him be righteous still. He was holy, let him be holy still. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Because in the spirit, the labor is fruitful and it has a reward. <clears throat> Apart from the spirit, labor is not fruitful. The wages of sin is death. And that's the judgment that happens when people are cut off. It's not if, if there's just no life there. Um, this idea of let him be filthy, be filthy, and all that kind of talks to uh, or harkens to Ezekiel 327, where Ezekiel says, When I speak with you, I will open your mouth, you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord. 
he who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are rebellious eyes. <clears throat> so Jesus said, he has ears to hear, let him hear. If you want to be rebellious, keep on. That will be the consequence, and that will bear, that will store up that reward. He who hears will store up a different reward. Verse 15, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life and enter through the gates of the city. Now, these, these things, Alpha and Omega, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Beginning and the end, uh, the uh, Greek is arche, and my favorite word, telos. So the end is not, it's all done, but completion. It is the beginning of the creation, it's also the completion of the creation. So our time begins and ends in Christ. That's the pattern of our prayer. We start in Christ, we go into the world, we come back to Christ. He is the first and the last, which is literally the protos and the eschatos, from which eschatology comes from, because it talks about the last things. Blessed are those who do his commandments. <clears throat> this just hearkens something that John's gospel emphasizes all the time. John 14, 21 he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So when faith is, moves us forward into obedience, then the reward of that is, 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 is a closer relationship with God. <clears throat> this is why I bless those who do it that there is no separation of faith from life. Now, we want to be clear here that in the, <clears throat> bless those who do them, it's not like, the standard is not your perfect performance. And the standard is that the only way to begin actually to keep his commandments is to be aware of how little you do. And that's, all of our prayer has this reality when we're aware of the presence of God, of both conviction for what is amiss and embrace and forgiveness, and then the moving out in the desire now to, to live in a new way. So we move forward, we progress in love. But sometimes people misread this like if if you make we fall into one sin of thought, word, or deed, all of a sudden God's going to cut you off. But that's not the way parents operate with their children. That's not the framework here. It's the work here is the things, the pattern that characterizes your life. Whoever keeps his word through the love of God is perfected in him, 1 John 2, 5. By this we know that we are of him. Verse 15, but outside, that's why outside the city we're talking about here, are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Remember in John's gospel that Jesus called the devil the father of lies. And so 
All these things, sorcery, immorality, murder, idolatry, it's all rooted in a lie that there's anything in these things. Thus, those who practice not just uh, not the, the, the lack of intellectual belief in God, but who live their lives on the false premises of just doing what they want in God's creation apart from God's word, therefore are living apart from God. And that's the consequence, you're outside the city. <laughs> These are, in a certain way, matters, because a lot of people miss, um, understand judgment, I think, as God sitting on the throne, and people come by, and you're arbitrarily saying, uh, you. but it's a, it, this is more of a biological reality, that is, God's spirit dwells in his people, and judgment reveals the children of God. And in revealing the children of God, it reveals those who are not, those who might be pretending, those, those who aren't, who are saying, you know, who are self-justifying. But if you if there's not been that faith, that turning, that faith, that light and the producing of fruit, there's no way such a person could even come into the city. Because sinful humanity cannot see God in it. It's only through repentance and faith and the work of the Spirit that we can actually live with God. And this whole idea that we live in the kingdom now is partly the way we were growing into the ability to live closer to Him. It's like living with God is like, yes, always. You know, it's, and we're being prepared for that. So this is not an arbitrary judgment. It's a revealing of who belongs to God and who, who, who doesn't, whose faith is real, whose faith is false. And the way of life that a person is living is the, is the thing that bears witness to whether the faith is real or not. Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the church, to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. This comes from Genesis 49, the bright morning star, and the, the, uh, the root and offspring of David. In Genesis 49, it was the first prophecy that from the tribe of Judah would come uh, the scepter. And this idea of root and offspring is caught up in the New Testament where Jesus is both the one who created David and then has become human. He's, he's been sentenced to David. It's a truth that he brings out in his debate with the Sadducees and Pharisees when they're talking about the resurrection and, and you know, the guy who married a woman and you know, the brothers all die. And all, but Jesus says, he turns the tables and says, um, let me ask you a question. In Psalm 110, David says, the Lord said to my Lord, that is God said to my Lord, the Messiah, 
sit down at my foot, sit down at my feet till I make your enemies your footstool. So the idea in the psalm is David is talking. And in the psalm, he sees God saying to the Messiah, I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. So David is calling this figure in Psalm 110, Lord. How can he be a descendant? And that's getting at this root and offspring. It's the mystery of the incarnation, that the one who in the beginning made all things became part of the creation he made. Verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And so there's different kinds of emphasis here. The spirit and the bride say to Christ, come. They, we want this to be fulfilled. There's a desire for his coming. And let him who hears say, come. So, you know, those who hear, who have ears to hear, says Jesus, come. And let him who thirsts come. So there's an evangelist evangelistic message. The thirsty can come and drink. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. It's received by repentance and faith. One must repent and believe to receive it. This harkens actually to Isaiah 55, where it says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money, come buy and eat. Verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from this the words of this book, of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Now, this is echoes of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2 which says of the Old Covenant, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor shall you take from it, but you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. And thus, when he says, don't add or take away, this is the New Covenant, be faithful to the thing that's being said. Don't act like some that's not binding on you, but don't add a bunch of other things that aren't. And that's, I think, the continual, you know, reformation of, 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 of the church and things. Okay, what is essential and what is, you know, be aware of what comes in. This is where Jesus criticized scribes and Pharisees because they had added to the words of the book. Verse 20, he who testifies these things says, surely I'm coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And this is one of the things that I think has always troubled me about the end times perspective. In the Bible, they're always saying, come, and no one ever wanted to come. But if we live, if the more we live in the kingdom of God, live in this place of union, communion with Christ and his kingdom, the more we want it fulfilled. 
the more deeply rooted are in this world and not the kingdom, or we like it to hold off till we're done. And then the other side, if we're just future, there's not really a very profound hope because if there's no real present experience of life in Christ and the Spirit we taste, how can we understand something to be a fulfillment of it? And therefore, heaven becomes just, they're going to torch everybody. We're going to, what are we doing up there? Because it doesn't really have a sacramental connection to actually life now. And that's why the authentic eschatology is, we, it's inaugurated, it's here. We already enjoy it in our genuine relationships in the kingdom, in our prayer, in enjoying the good things of life sacramentally. But there, we want it complete and always. That's why we say come. That's what we mean. We say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We want Christ to come today in our lives, but we ultimately want the complete fulfillment. And that gets at the eschatological tension. Come now, but, but come ultimately to There's all that. Thank you for your patience. It's a thick book, I know. I hope everyone got something from it. Uh, that's the main thing to uh, to be aware of, that um, when you go through studying something that you don't understand all of, don't worry about it. Get what you can. That's the only way you learn more. I mean, anything, any of you who know anything about anything know the first time you waded into it, you didn't know anything about it. And you were overwhelmed by it. And then you hung out, you read a little more, and then 10 years later, 20 years later, you're teaching it. So just understand that there's a, um, you don't need to know, get more than you get. For my understanding, find that Eden is not prohibited, but it's a blessing. What's that? The kind of Eden. It's not prohibited, but it's a blessing. But in the time of their prohibiting, they have the rule because there's some immorality happening. For example, adultery. Yeah. But our utility is a blessing. And he said, at certain point, they have the rule of prohibition because they do adultery, they do immorality. That's comparable. They said, you can't. Do this, but you do it. And then the later days is turned to be a blessing. Is that I I understand correctly? Whatever the heavens of God from original, originally beginning of the Bible. Well, again, what we said here today was the Garden of Eden was God's original creation and His dwelling place with with humanity. That was all lost by sin. And the old covenant was the way that God began to restore it. It's been fulfilled down the new covenant. So metaphorically, we are now, 